All right, thank you everyone. I appreciate you uh, attending today's session on how psychology concepts may help us understand the rise of extremism and the belief in conspiracy theories. Uh, the democracy commitment um, program on campus, which I happen to be a coordinator of, has had several events uh, in the past several months examining the rise of polarization, extremism, anger, mistrust that is afflicting our country. So today we're going to try to understand how psychology concepts may help us understand some of these uh, changes in extremism and belief in conspiracy theories. So my name is Kevin Navratel, and I am joined by three of my good friends and psychology faculty members at Marine Valley. We have Mitchell Baker. We have Dr. Laura Lawson Collins. And we have Nick Jesus. And I want to thank each of them. I know that they have spent a lot of time on this topic. We have probably a day's worth of information that we could share with you uh, if you could see the notes that our panel members prepared. But I think the idea today is we're going to start off with around 10 minutes for each of our three panel members, and then we would open it up for any questions and comments that people may have in the chat. Uh, otherwise, I have some follow-up questions, and, and we could also allow our panel members to go uh, to other content that they had prepared that they may not have gotten to in their first um, discussion. So with uh, that in mind, I'll turn it over to Dr. Laura Lawson-Collins, who happens to be teaching a class on the psychology of conspiracy theories, and she really focuses on our psychology classes dealing with social psychology. So it's definitely, it's interesting and exciting to hear from Dr. Collins of what she has to offer for us today. Thanks so much, Kevin. Um, so there are a lot of different things that go into why we believe in conspiracy theories um, and why we are drawn to them. Um, and I know that Mitch and Nick are going to be going over some of these factors as well. So I, I wanted to focus on some of the social psychology connected to why we tend to believe in conspiracy theories. And from a social psychological perspective, I think that there are really two main factors that that draw us in. Um, that first factor is that the way in which we think is flawed and is often irrational. So um, we have kind of two main tracks of of thinking and by the way are you guys getting feedback on your end or is it just me i hear a little bit but it's not bad you can still understand me i hear a little yeah. bit as well yeah, yeah. yeah i mean i'm not sure where the noise is coming from no it's all it's all good yeah okay okay i just want to make sure everybody could hear me yeah um, sounds good okay so um what I wanted to talk about were these two tracks of thinking. One is uh, more deliberate, kind of rational thinking, and then the other way of thinking is much faster and tends to be irrational. Um, we tend to think of ourselves as being rational most of the time. You know, we're thinking through our decisions in a logical way, and so of course we're not going to believe anything that's irrational like some of the conspiracy theories that we've heard. Um, but the matter of fact is that most of our processing and um, you know, neuroscientists have estimated that we're really talking about 99% of the processing that goes on in the brain is, is unconscious and it's dominated by that 
first, less rational system. And that system does a lot of things for us. Um, and it's important that we have it so that we can make quick decisions and so that we don't have to get bogged down with, you know, really uh, rational, logical, deep thinking for every single decision that we make. Um, but the problem is, is that it leaves us open to vulnerabilities in our thinking and predictable vulnerabilities in our thinking. Um, and conspiracy theories, especially how they are being presented now to us in social media and, and within our media bubbles, um, it takes advantage of those uh, vulnerabilities in our irrational thinking, in our unconscious, uh, what Danny Kahneman would call our, our track one kind of thinking. Um, so I think part of it is, again, just that our, our our thinking is much more flawed than we recognize and we realize and conspiracy theories and how they are presented, how um, we process them. It takes advantage of that kind of irrational thinking. The second major factor from a social from a social psychological point of view is our need to belong. So we are a species that that works well as a collective. You know, we have evolved to need others. We do not work well by ourselves. Now, you know, some of you might be thinking, well, no, I, I prefer to work by myself. You know, I, I can do things on my own and, you know, like may, maybe thinking of group projects and that kind of thing. Um, maybe you see yourself as someone who's an independent thinker, but as much as you might see yourself as an independent person who doesn't really need other people, the, the fact of the matter is that we do, we all need other people. And when we don't have those connections, um, it, it, it's, it's not good for us. It's not only not good for our brain um, and our emotions and our ability to think through things, but it's also not good for our body. It can make us sick. Um, uh, Robert Cialdini had, had estimated uh, that uh, being lonely, chronically lonely, is as bad for you as smoking cigarettes on a, on a daily basis. Uh, so it's bad for our health, it's bad for our brain, it's bad for our emotions. We need other people. And because we need other people, we want to be accepted by other people. We want to fit in with the groups that we see as our group. Um, again, conspiracy theories take advantage of that. Um, some conspiracy theories give you a real sense of belonging. You know, I think about QAnon, for example. Uh, many people sitting at home, feeling lonely, feeling disconnected from friends and family, not being at work, and they find this group of people that all see themselves as outsiders and, you know, people seeking the truth, and, and they feel this sense of connection to the other people in this community, and it does become a community, you know, and, and they care what the other people in that community think about them. And um, once you start seeing that group as a community, um, you process the information that they give you differently. Um, you are less critical of it. Um, you are more likely to take it just on faith based on what the people in your group are telling you. Um, and we even now have evidence from fMRIs that there are different neural networks that process information from our in-group 
versus neural networks that process information from our outgroup. We also know that when we're presented with information from our outgroup, um, that we that tends to trigger um, a fight or flight kind of response, uh, a feeling threatened kind of response, and that automatically makes us think a lot less rationally. Um, and so we tend to believe what the people in our group are telling us. We process it in a different through a different social lens. Um, but also a different neurological perspective, literally different neural circuits are processing that information as opposed to when we're seeing information or hearing information from people who are non-believers, who are outside of that group. Um, the last thing that I wanted to say about the need to belong is that, you know, if you don't already believe in a conspiracy theory, you know, that that and that conspiracy theory is providing you with uh, with a sense of belonging and you know group, um, you may be exposed to conspiracy theories through your through your media bubbles, you know, through the information that you're being presented with that your group believes that um, once you start um, getting exposed to those ideas and you go kind of further and further and further down through those ideas. Um, Again, you're making more and more connections with that group and you're starting to see that group as us as opposed to them. And I have no idea where I am on time. I guess that's about right, right? Yeah, it's actually 10 minutes on, on the nose. Perfect, okay. uh, Laura. And we will come back to um, more of what some of the other um, information that I know you have prepared as, as well. So, um, but at this point, I will turn it over to Mitch. All right. Thanks, Kevin. I uh, appreciate being asked to be part of the panel. Um, it made me, as I was doing some of the research for this, it made me even question, you know, some of my own bubbles, right? And uh, how do I access information? Um, there's a lot of perspectives in psychology, and, you know, you're going to hear some different ones from my colleagues and a lot of other as well. However, one of the things that I subscribe to is that the idea of behavior is primarily intentional and purposeful. And because of that, you know, I believe behavior is the output of a motivational need, often not satisfied. And that's where I'm going to primarily focus my time today on the idea of motivation. The field of anthropology uses a concept of person. I'm hearing a lot of feedback as well. I don't know if you guys can mute yourselves if you're not. You know, depends if you're not talking, but uh, um, but maybe it's just my end. Sorry. So the field of anthropology, as I was saying, uses a concept of push and pull factors as determinants of migration patterns, right? So some ideas of whether or not a group of people will remain in one place or will move to the other. The idea of push factors when it comes to persuasion are those that increase feelings of uncertainty or marginalization, inequality. Uh, denial of, of uh, feelings of denial that my basic human rights and dignity are, are uh, not afforded me. And unfortunately, right now in our current climate, there's a lot of that going on in the world. And when we feel that way, right, when we have those feelings that are high like that, we are more impressionable to misinformation and deceptive messaging. The context or environment, right, you know, if you will, uh, shapes what and how we think. And a large part of our social context now is consumed and experienced through social media. 
And these apps and platforms are primarily designed to show you posts that you like to increase your engagement. So they keep bringing you back. Uh, that also helps with their bottom line and makes them stronger. So the exposure to the way uh, to information is primarily with views you already agree with. And this creates a confirmation bias, right? So not only will we um, seek out information to confirm what I believe, but it also allows me to interpret information in a way that helps me sleep at night and uh, confirms what I believe. Now, our information consumption is frequently become this proverbial like bubble or echo chamber. And these filter bubbles now are preventing us from hearing countering arguments or differing sets of information. And the biased content not only is just information anymore, but it actually is we're starting to see research on how it's influencing and misinforming on how people actually behave in the real world. And we saw this with messages about the last election and behaviors around uh, COVID-19. How do people respond to things? The fact that we have widespread polarization right now, um, you know, which is essentially a form of extremism, right? You know, operating on these these ends of societal norms, right? So when we were talking a lot of psychological concepts of, of group polarizations are really applied to this idea of extremism. And so when we have this, this polarization or extremism and these strongly held beliefs and conspiracy theories, in my opinion, this is like a symptom of a much larger problem. You know, some might look at the idea that we have conspiracy theories or um, uh, extremist behaviors as the problem, but I believe that if you were to mitigate the, the problem, those symptoms would go away. And so these problems stem from three primary motives. And most of the research I'm sharing with you now is, gonna, is coming from Karen Douglas. I uh, was done the last couple of years and she identified three motives. And the first being ep epistemic, the second existential and the third social. So the epistemic is the need for knowledge and understanding or the desire to have um, information. As people, we all have ideas about things. We have our truths, if you will, in, in your quotes. And we want to feel certain about those truths. So to gain confidence in our truths and our understanding of the world, we're drawn to all different types of information when we feel uncertain because we're looking for something, right? So this, we have this need to thoroughly understand things. And if times of ambiguity, we reach for like a lifeline, a lifeboat, if you will, that'll hold us, we'll hold on to anything that's going to give us a sense of stability. And even when it's inaccurate, sometimes we don't even are able to identify the inaccuracies. We prepare ourselves to defend our beliefs from disinformation, right? Like, so if I know you're coming at me and saying some counterpoint, I'm gearing myself up to ready for this fight, right? And I'm only entrenching my beliefs. This is a major problem. We lack information literacy skills. And this is one of the big issues we face today is we have an abundance of information that's aggregated and no way to vet it, right? So we don't have this ability to find and evaluate sources. And, but we need to have like the ability to get information from a variety of places. Now, when it, you know, since we're talking about conspiracy theories as well, um, a conspiracy theory is speculative in nature, right? By its own nature, it claims to have actions that are hidden from the full public purview and disinformation is specifically there covering up some greater truth, right? Sounds very sexy, very beautiful, right? If you will. And, and, and to that end, uh, conspiracy theories can actually protect our beliefs, right? Such as like take, take a belief of, let's say you have a, a belief that vaccines are harmful or climate change is not real. This will validate a particular set of actions or inactions that you might undertake going forward, right? So conspiracy theories provide explanations that allow us to continue our belief systems when information is contradictory and uncertain. 
because as humans, you know, I'll let one of my other colleagues, I think uh, Nick was going to talk about cognitive dissonance. So, but we have this need to reduce cognitive dissonance and then ultimately seek closure. Now, the second motive is existential. And this is all about creating meaning. And I still have to get to watch your, uh, your, your book review, Kevin, but I can't wait to look. It's, it's, it's bookmarked. Um, this is the need to feel safe, uh, need to be and feel safe, right? And secure in our world. We need autonomy and control. We don't want feelings of powerlessness. If I don't have control, I need to feel I have an answer or at least information as to why I, I can't control this environment. So we increase beliefs in conspiracies when we feel anxious, right? So, you know, and, and, and right now in this world climate, we have a lot of anxiety, right? We have a lot of people reporting feelings of anxiety that never felt that way before. And conspiracy theories make us feel safer, right? Because they provide information that exposes the real truth, right? Even though the information is incredible and often false. Um, so existential, existentialism is all about finding meaning and this meaning boosts our autonomy and control. Um, kind of watch my clock here, so I'm gonna go through a little quicker. So the idea of social is the third motive and final motive. And this is the need to feel good about oneself, right? As an individual or the groups that we belong to. Like I wanna feel good that I go to Moraine. I want, so I'm gonna create some things that are highlight those things that are positive about them. We also need to have a positive image within our group. So conspiracies allow us to blame and give attributions uh, to the negative outcomes to other people, right? So, so I can blame other people for my plight. So if I know my, if my group knows the truth and it provides a sense of superiority and uniqueness, right? I know the truth, you guys don't. And this can even feed into some of the narcissism. And one thing I didn't realize, I mean, I guess I could have guessed it, but when I'm doing this research for this talk, um, that so many studies correlate narcissism to extremism. And so the idea of conspiracy theories even allow us some relief from be believing that I'm guilty or wrong. Think the insurgency on the Capitol and the propaganda um, that the election was stolen, right? It endorsed their sense of victimization, polarized the behaviors of prejudice against that evil other side that I am saving America, right? And the last two data show that 25% of people believe that, outbreak, that the outbreak was intentionally planned by people in power, right? So now there's evidence so why not, right? We have all this evidence of extremism and conspiracies that, you know, that have been around for the dawn of time. Um, but we are seeing periods of high mistrust in our government. You know, so we constantly see, we hear over the news that there's gaps in the richest, uh, between the richest and the poorest among us of racial inequities and injustice. So how can you believe that those in power have your interest in, you know, at heart, right? So one last idea I want to talk about is kind of the, the words we use and, and the idea of fake news, right? We flippantly call it fake news to, to, to kind of dismantle what the other people are saying, you know, and that's one of the problems. Words do matter and they do matter a lot. Um, when we call it fake news, we need to really label it for what it really is, which is misinformation and specifically often deliberate misinformation. And when we label something as fake news, and it's, it's, it's an unsophisticated term which only idiots can fall for, and I'm not an idiot. So, but when you deliberately misinform me, then that's a violation of the trust. Um, I have a few other things, but I think I am now out of time. So I'll kick it back to Kevin. Thank you, Mitch. And I appreciate panelists uh, staying on, on time and, uh, and most importantly, providing so much good information for us. Um, before I turn it over to, to Nick, uh, just remind uh, those of you who are listening, 
um, or watching our presentation today that you can ask any questions or make comments in the chat box uh, on WebEx and we will get to those um, after Nick's uh, portion. So Nick, I'll turn it over to you. Kevin, thanks so much for inviting us. And, uh, and Mitch, I'm with you 100%. Uh, researching all this information made me consider my own bubble and my own confirmation bias and the sources that I tend to look at and whatnot. Um, and so I'm gonna talk a little bit about foot in the door technique. I'm gonna make some parallels to cultism, talk about a little bit about uh, cognitive dis dissonance. Uh, but as I was researching uh, all this information, you know, when you look at the rise in extremism, uh, something that I, that, that I cannot overlook is uh, that uh, a lot of individuals who take extreme views or extreme actions, uh, they feel like their, their nation, their traditions, culture, and religion is being threatened uh, with perceived or actual threats. And so, Kevin, I know we spoke earlier today uh, and, and some time ago, we talked about people's identities being threatened. And so because of these threats, they feel a sense of anger, resentment, fear, shame, distress, I would imagine. And so you combine the emotions and the beliefs that might help us understand what we've been seeing. Uh, and, and I'd like to even say the past 12 years, you know, I've seen a shift since 2008, coincidentally, which is when President Obama first started his first two, uh, the first of two terms. Um, and also, which is also probably the rise of social media too. So Mitch, you mentioned misinformation. I think that's where people found their first outlet uh, to share misinformation. So, you know, the president at that time symbolized change that a lot of people welcomed and some did not welcome those changes. So, and, and I believe some people were threatened with the cultural shift that occurred uh, uh, from 2008 to 2016, you know, which is maybe why we've seen more hate crimes uh, in 2019 than we had, you know, in the previous decade. Um, so when, when I think about uh, individuals that feel so, you know, they feel so threatened, um, uh, well, Laura, like you said, I think they look for a sense of belonging. They look for people that kind of share their same concerns and, and, and plight. And there's a professor that I was reading some research on, his name was Dr. Andrew Silke, uh, S-I-L-K-E out of Cranfield University, he talked about the process of uh, radicalization. And he says that uh, these extreme views, again, provide a sense of belongingness and uh, increased status and self-esteem because you feel like you belong to an important group, like you said. Um, but one thing I found kind of interesting is that these views and behaviors uh, offer a sense of risk, uh, excitement, and danger to some people uh, in addition to a sense of revenge. And so I think, uh, when I think about somebody with extreme views, it's really hard for me to separate a sense of anger that they have inside of them, because I think you have to have that, uh, that passion, I guess, and anger to maybe take some of those views. So, which leads to my thoughts on cultism. Um, you know, you look at the actions of January 6th, the insurgents in the Capitol building, and if you believe that it was motivated by the, by the QAnon movement, uh, Laura, you mentioned uh, that movement as well. Uh, then I think I think that insurgents resemble some cult-like behavior, and that might incorporate some of the concepts that you know that we talked about. Uh, I think it's appropriate to use the word extremism, because again, this is a very extreme and tragic event. Five people died, 140 people were injured, uh, and uh, and so I think when you look at how this could happen, how could somebody uh, travel all the way to D.C., go to a rally, and then 
you know, storm the Capitol building and break through its doors. I, I like to think about the foot in the door technique that, uh, that, that many of us teach about in social psychology. Uh, I read about a little bit of the recruitment process and techniques that some people in the QAnon movement used with uh, different variations of the Save the Children movement, which is not affiliated actually with QAnon, uh, but they talked about saving children to encourage people to care about their cause. So it's entirely possible that individuals who care about saving the children donated to candidates that either supported QAnon or chose not to disavow the movement and who talked about taking down uh, you know, the belief of the Democratic leaders and the Hollywood uh, personalities who were part of this secret cabal of pedophiles who molest the need children. And if we believe that to be true and that is actually happening, then, then I suppose that does need to be stopped. So if you believe that that threat exists and you wanna support those candidates or the people who are gonna stop that threat. So then we attend rallies where we sense, where we gain a sense of belongingness and, uh, and perhaps we get other needs met. So again, this is an example of the foot in the door technique, which is the process of using small favors incrementally to encourage people to agree to larger requests or behaviors. So we again, we start off by watching a video that is sent to us from people that we trust, and it talks about saving children. Uh, and then we might donate to somebody who appears to support the movement. Then we attend a rally where our beliefs and sense of importance is validated. Uh, then, then. If we become fully committed or we commit ourselves to this movement, we might be moved to take action at the Capitol building, especially, especially if you believe in the QAnon movement and you believe that Donald Trump was the only one, the only candidate who was working on bringing evil people to justice. So in, in essence, if you think about it in their minds, if you take the perspective of somebody uh, in the movement, uh, they were storming the Capitol building to save the world. Uh, and that's how they'll explain it. Um, and again, it all started with the foot in the door technique. So, um, how am I doing with time? Um, I think we have a few more minutes. Yeah, you're good. It's okay. Okay. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Now, if you think about Mitch, you talked about confirmation bias as well, which is something that I was reading about. If you think about it, it's possible that you might surround yourself with others that have the same beliefs and shut out people or sources that have dissenting opinions. So, anecdotally, I suppose if I challenge somebody's belief about their commitment to QAnon or other extremist ideas, I suppose they'd shut me out too, and they would view me as their enemy or an accomplice or an accomplice to the cannibals. And uh, so as a result of that confirmation bias, they would only surround themselves with true believers. Uh, and this might lead to a rise in extremism as well, because it's easy to create a bubble of information that confirms what you believe and push out people you know, who, who dissent. Um, a couple words maybe about cognitive dissonance, which is the other concept from social psychology that I was going to bring up. Um, I, I reread this classic textbook um, by a social psychologist named Dr. Elliot Aronson called The Social Animal. And he, in that book, he talked about how Osama bin Laden was able to encourage uh, extremists to take their own lives by taking advantage of cognitive, cognitive dissonance. So if you parallel that, uh, he, he suggests of what ha to what's happening today. He suggests that uh, fanaticism or extremism 
uh, might be explained by looking at how people were raised in their upbringing, uh, who've been taught all their lives that America is supposed to be a particular way. Um, some studies have shown that people have, you know, certain beliefs, you know, dominant Christian ideals, a belief that, uh, you know, people earn what they have and that other less advantaged people need to work harder. Uh, you know, the belief that we're not supposed to question authority or, or leaders or, or military or police. Uh, the belief that the police would never hurt anybody good and only bad guys or, you know, bad people get arrested or shot. Uh, in, you know, the belief that English is uh, supposed to be only spoken in this country. Uh, strong beliefs of patriotism. Ethnic exclusionism. And so. And they realized that by interacting in the real world, in reality, these things don't always match up with what they've learned, right? And so this causes some serious cognitive dissonance, which is the uncomfortableness or tension that results when your attitudes or your beliefs do not match up with your behaviors or the behaviors that you perceive outside. So they get angry at this uh, difference. And so if you question any of those things, I suppose you might be labeled as un-American. So how do you try to manage this tension? By trying to take down the exact thing that is causing the tension, right? This, this helps us answer why we've seen more extremism, again, not just in the past year, but in the past 12 years. Extremist views and behaviors are, I believe, are likely a way of dealing with the dissonance that these extremists are experiencing. Um, this explains the motives to me on groups like the Proud Boys. They were losing, you know, felt like they were losing part of their national identity. Um, and, and if you think about the, the QAnon movement, you know, uh, these people believe that democratic leaders are trying to destroy America and bring socialism in. And if the democratic leaders and the Hollywood elites win the election, they're going to succeed in destroying the America that we've all known and loved, they might say. And so if they see them as the ultimate evil, they need to be weakened. And so even by insurrection, I suppose, and taking hostages at the Capitol building. And so, again, if these people are destroying the meaning in their lives and the values that define their identities, then again, that, that would explain why they take violent means to destroy their enemies and hold on to their identities. It's, uh, uh, I'm not excusing any of the behavior. I'm just, you know, as a professor, I've always tried to explain things in, you know, in, a, in an educational lens. So if people are asking why this could be, uh, you know, I think this is one of the reasons. And so I want to be respectful of time. I'm, I'm about a minute over. So, uh, and everybody's done such a great job. I don't want to ruin it. So, Kevin, thank you. Oh, thank you, Nick. And, and I think we're only over a minute because I've talked a little bit longer. So keep that in mind too. But uh, I did want to provide an opportunity uh, for questions uh, from anybody who is attending this WebEx session. And, and um, I wanted to start with, there's two that I have. I, I think the first one, since more than one of you brought this up, I'm thinking, and some of you may have attended this session um, where I played a clip of, of Jonathan Haidt, a social psychologist, and he he's talking about how um, in-group versus out-group, us versus them, is is kind of just part of us as humans, and that he he cited this parable of me versus my brother, me and my brother versus my cousin, me and my brother and cousin versus the other. And um, so I'm thinking of that in terms of 2021, where our, our world has really shrank. And I'm just wondering, with our ability to, to, to um, be able to 
have videos and, and kind of see what's going on all throughout the world, why wouldn't the us versus them, why wouldn't the us expand and be bigger to include, let's say, um, all Americans versus them being outside the United States? Um, instead of it seems to be so exacerbated internally where the us and them is like Democrats, Republicans, or um, some of the divisions that we have internally. Hmm. If that makes sense. Uh, you, okay, so I'll turn it over to any one of you who would like to take a response to that. I'll take a, a little stab at it. Nick and Mitch, you guys definitely jump in. Um, yes. But Kevin, I, I think that it comes down to whatever ideas are dominant at the time, what's dominant within your media bubble at the time. I'd like you to imagine a scenario where uh, later today aliens cover the globe, you know, with spaceships and suddenly the entire world is under attack. Um, that line of us versus, uh, us versus them would shift radically. Um, and it's always shifting, you know, it's a, as um, you were talking about, you know, me versus my brother and then me and my brother versus my cousin, me, my brother, my cousin versus, you know, the next group. Um, there, There is a lot of shifting and I think it depends on, again, the dominant ideas that you are embedded within, you know, so. Uh, I, I think that it's going to depend on the the groups that you're in and the information that you're being exposed to, kind of your your social and media reality. Um, and you know, if your social and media reality have nothing to do with politics, then us and them are going to be totally different things. It might be Cubs fans versus White Sox fans, or it might be you know people from. Um, Illinois versus people from Indiana, or I, I, again, you know, like it can shift. And I think it shifts depending upon, you know, psychologists would use the term what's salient at the time. What's mm -hmm. salient in your media environment? Um, and so, you know, what's, what's going on in your media feed? Is, is your media feed dominated by politics? If it is, then that us versus them group of, of Republicans versus Democrats or QAnon believers versus non-QAnon believers, that's what's going to be dominant. That's, yeah. that, that's my first, you know, kind of stab at that. Mitch and Nick? Uh, yeah, if I, if I may, I'll jump in a little bit. I, I was going to say, I think Kate also said um, that unless the aliens attack the world, you know, they'll never truly be an us yeah. versus them, right? You, know, yeah. you brought yeah. that up. So uh, a couple of interesting points, though, to that idea about the world being smaller, right? The idea of globalization. And it made me think, it made me remember that um, I teach an IO class, a business psychology class, and it's got to be like eight or nine years now. I used to sign this article that talked about, you know, global economies, right? And it was reports of, it was actually interviews with people in different fields. And the one that I remember like off the cuff was uh, this one guy who lived like somewhere like off, you know, like in, in New England area, and he was an investment banker. And he was talking about how his needs are more in common with another person that's in England or China than they are with his direct neighbor, right? And how that the needs aren't so localized anymore, they become more, more widespread. So the identification of this us versus them, 
you know, given the digital world that we live in becomes, you know, a little bit like more difficult to navigate. It's not as um, it's not as, as, as clear cut as like I live in this little area. And because of the different perspectives that we might have from house to house and Kevin, this will be your area more, but like the idea of gerrymandering, you know, I mean, and really trying to create um, like, like, you know, like secure voting, you know, silos, uh, you know, become really critical to, to, to do this. So, um, you know, and, and the reality too is, I mean, we live in a society right now that we're, you know, that we, we debunk science, right? We don't even have value in the science. So anyone with a Twitter handle is now an expert. So, I mean, it's really hard to, to figure out how do we get this? And it's really easy to see how we can have this rise of, of extremism and in beliefs and conspiracies. So, yeah. Uh, and and if I may take a a turn at the question, um, I was uh, the thing I think that best correlates here is this uh, this idea from cognitive psychology called the availability heuristic, right? Uh, which is uh, it's almost very similar to what you just talked about. What's most avail what information is most available to us is the things that we've been watching and hearing about for the past four years. Um, uh, I read a re I read a research study years ago that that talked about you know depending on depending on when you ask people you know what what was the most important you know topic of a particular election it depends on which election that you're talking about because those are the things that are most recent things that we think about but the past four years the past four years you know we've been looking at talking about Democrats and Republicans like on two different sides, different sides, almost like two different game sides, right? Like one's coming after us and, you know, and, and the other one's coming after us. So, uh, so I think it depends on what you tend to watch, what you tend to intake. And so you have to be really careful uh, because that absolutely influences us. And so I don't remember this us versus them type of mentality growing up, but I also watched a lot of media when I was growing up either. So, so what's the solution to this? Um, you know, turn it all off and that way we'll be, ignorance will be bliss and we won't know anything. And then we'll be surprised at why people are talking about this kind of stuff. Um, I guess that's one way that you could do it or, or try to find, you know, the most unbiased media sources so you're not influenced by the availability heuristic. I was surprised. I was taken back in the past for years. There, you know, I, anecdotally, I've had a couple people kind of semi-close to, uh, uh, you know, saw me as an adversary for some of the things that I had shared and believed, and I would have never thought in my life that somebody that I've known for you know thirty years plus would see me as an enemy. And so it's surprising. But listen, folks, if you watch Fox News all day, uh, that's going to infiltrate your thoughts. If you watch CNN all day, that's going to dominate your thoughts. And I mean, and if you look at the availability heuristic, uh, you know, those are the things that you know that we think about. It's a little surprise that in the in this recent election, in my local election, people were sending propaganda days before the election to keep that information available as you vote. Um, I just wanted to throw one thing in there uh, that just to kind of piggyback on something Mitch had said, and I think maybe more to your question, Kevin, about how is it that we can have these kind of really extremist groups when there's so much information and, you know, there's so much connection worldwide. And, um, you know, I think, again, you know, 
linking it back to what Mitch was saying, I, I think that we have a much greater opportunity today than we did 10 years ago to hook up with people online who are very much believing in a small sliver of, of you know, information um, that we, we might not have been able to find 10 years ago. Um, and as we hook into that group, um, it, it tends to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and unfortunately, the algorithms in uh, social media platforms cater to that. Uh, I just listened to a podcast on um, conspiracy theories, the rise of conspiracy theories in social media. And uh, they interviewed the guy who developed the algorithm for YouTube. Um, that the, you know, there have been many variations of it, but uh, the one where people really started getting pulled into a lot of extremist views was the algorithm that this guy developed. And he feels really guilty about it. I cannot remember his name. He's uh, from France um, and was eventually fired because of his opposition to his own algorithm. But essentially, you know, what he and his team were told was we need to we need to optimize viewer hours, viewer minutes. So whatever is more interesting, um, more extreme, that's in line with the person's current view, that's what we want the algorithm to show them. So you might start off with a Fox News clip and that leads you to, you know, something that's a little bit more extreme, but more interesting. You know, that's maybe less based in reality, which then leads you to another one, which then leads you to another one. And, um, you know, he had suggested to Google at the time, how about we give people opposing views? You know, maybe we could do like a balance kind of thing in the algorithm. And they never let him do it past the, the, the kind of thought process stage because they said that's going to decrease our, our hours. That's going to decrease our viewership. And we want, that's our goal. You know, our goal is not to make sure everybody's, you know, well balanced. Our goal is to make sure people stay on the platform and consume as much as possible. Um, so anyways, I'm sorry, kind of went on a bit there, but, um, you know, I just, when you were talking, Mitch, it, it just reminded me that just because we have access to a ton of different balanced, valid, fact-based information doesn't mean that that's what makes it to our phone or our feed. No, it's, it's true. And, and just a uh, thought on that point is this, I, would, I don't really know what's happening in the high schools or not, um, you know, but I hope that there's some way in a class, some class, that they're at least providing some type of um, foundation for media and information literacy skills, right? That, that's all I can ask for because it's so, it, it's, it's an important thing going forward for people to be able to analytically or, or not even analytically, but objectively evaluate the mm -hmm. information. Mitch, I was thinking the exact same thing uh, as uh, I almost predicted. I was going to say information literacy. I mean, we have to, we have, to have that. I mean, uh, if students don't necessarily get it in college or university, then you would hope that in high school that they would. I mean, it's one of the big things. It's one of the big things that most of us teach about is being able to analyze information objectively. Let's hope that they would. Yeah. Great point. You know, just to tie that all, all together, I, I, I think um, it's almost like an autoimmune uh, issue where we're kind of uh, turning inward and with, with um, finding enemies within 
and as you all three described uh, in part right because of cable the way our information ecosystem has evolved over the last couple of decades um, cable news um, being more um, partisan of social media and so you were basically saying that we can um, despite the world kind of shrinking we might be able to find like-minded people not necessarily geographically close but ideologically close yeah. um, so um, you know and i would um, want to just point out that i you know i know at marine valley we have uh, information uh, literacy librarian tish hayes and and uh, you know Troy Swanson and other people in the library who really focus on this too. And they've put together a lot of great resources on the Marine Valley uh, Library website. Um, but I also just this morning happened to, to read um, Dr. Jenkins was um, in, in our newsletter, uh, was talking about some of the, the racism that she faced uh, in her lifetime. And she, she had this line about how we all want to be happy and we all want to we all want a happy life we all want food to eat we all want a place to sleep in a safe environment safe neighborhood so i guess it's it's brings me to think we have so many reasons why we should the us should be fairly um broad but um despite all of those similarities of you know we we have kids or we have people we love we have um, we like the same sports teams or whatever it may be we, we we've turned on ourselves and we have a lot of these internal divisions. I wanted to shift gears for, for just a moment uh, and go back actually to um, something that uh, uh, Laura mentioned earlier on with um, the track one type of thinking and being 99% of, of what we do. And, and I was just thinking that that would be, that would be great for most of human history, right? Uh, in, in that it's our, making those quick decisions would be very helpful and we're not overworking our brain on tasks that are, aren't necessary. But perhaps maybe in the more modern world, that two-track thinking in the first track that's being so um, with the quick decisions and vulnerabilities and so forth and biased is really problematic for um, more modern scenarios. So I guess, so I don't know if it's like our lizard, like our old brain in a 21st century era is like kind of a recipe for disaster. So I, I would disagree with that a little bit, okay. um, push back on that a little bit because um, I, I very strongly feel we still need that track one thinking. It does a lot for us um, and we would not be able to function in the modern world or in any world without it. Um, we have to have it functioning. Uh, there was a, a, a middle-aged man who had a stroke um, and lost a good deal of his system one processing due to that stroke, due to damage in, in an area of the brain that contributes to a lot of that automatic decision making. Um, he had, at the time he had the stroke, he had a career and he had a family and he had, you know, like the, the American dream. Um, after he recovered from that stroke and he was able to regain lots of his abilities, um, he was not really capable of making fast decisions. He could make thought out reasoned logical decisions, but he couldn't make fast, quick decisions. Um, 
So he would agonize over what color pen to use. You know, he would sit and stare at his closet, you know, as trying to figure out what shirt, what what's most logical, you know, and I, I challenge you to go to the grocery store and stand in the cereal aisle and figure out using reason and logic what cereal to buy out of the, you know, 100 plus cereals. Um, he, he lost his job. He lost his family. You know, he wasn't able to function. We need that part of the brain. Um, very, very much we need it. Um, I don't think that it's a, a question of wanting to get rid of it or um, even, you know, try to go around it, but but rather figuring out a way to use it um, in, um, in a more purposeful way. So, for example, um, you know, we know that one thing that you can do to help to decrease implicit bias is just exposure to people who are counter stereotype. So, for example, if you believe that um, women go in the humanities and men go into math and science, um, or maybe you take an implicit bias, bias test and, and it shows that you have those implicit biases, which are dominant in our culture, one technique for reducing that implicit bias is exposing yourself intentionally to photo after photo after photo after photo after photo of women in math and engineering environments and men in humanities or nurturing, nurturing, let's say, or caregiving environments. And the more exposure you have, the, the more opportunity you have to shift um, that, that implicit bias. Now you're still, you know, the brain is still using that, that track one, um, but you've kind of hacked into it on purpose. You know, you've intentionally altered what you're being exposed to. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think that it's not so much that we want to, you know, downplay that track or get rid of it. It's, it's essential to our functioning, um, but rather try to figure out techniques that are consistent with it that we can use um, in a more intentional way. And I think I think what you know, I mean, I would agree with you and I think Kevin would probably agree with you on that, Laura. But I think like the spirit or at least how I was understanding what you were saying, like the spirit of that idea is this is if like at track one is really like these just making, you know, it's it's critical to like survive by being able to make very quick decisions with minimal information. Right. Um, and that are going to help save your life and even just get out of a grocery store. But the other thing that I want to say is that. You know, I mean, our brain may not, I mean, I don't have the answer to this million dollar question, but I mean, our brain just might not be hardwired yet to process the plethora of information that is uh, abound because we used to only have access. I mean, even like, you know, I mean, as a middle-aged man, you know what I mean? Like when I was a child, I, I my, my information was limited to a physical newspaper that hopefully got delivered on time and my community. And so those are my trusted resources, along with like a TV, you know, I didn't live that long ago, right? You know, and it was, but I had limited resources. So the, for the ability for the brain to, like, you know, I think we're, I think we've been trained and wired to trust our sources, right? You know what I mean? Because we've had eons of time of just living in tribal communities where these are the people who have my best interests in, my, in heart because we're all kind of in this thing together. And I don't know with the way social media is about 
and like maybe in its purest sense, it might be for that. Like it might have, you know, um, maybe initially, like you would be exposed to a lot of different views, but then they started to realize to monetize it, I need to focus this. Um, so like it, it kind of feeds into my expectations, you know? So, so I don't know if, I mean, I think to Kevin's point, I think we do need to, you know, kind of step back and even ask like, is our brain prepared to make the kind of decisions given the amount of information that we have access to today. And, and I don't know if we are, you know, in, a, in, a, in an objective or analytical way. I, I, yeah. I, don't think can. I don't think you can without, you know, with conflicting information that we have all around us. And so I think that goes back to the point of being able to learn some information or media literacy so we can find trust the particular source where you can make decisions. Yeah, and I, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying at all, Mitch. Not not even one little bit. I completely agree with what you're saying. Uh, um, I know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think that um, our brains are... I, what I would say is I think that social media has been very effective at hacking into the biases that we already have, at exploiting them. Hacking is probably a yeah. wrong word, but exploiting them in a way to make us pay more attention. Um, and you're right, you know, at this point, there's so much information coming in. We can't, we can't go out and logically, rationally think about every single strand of information that we are being exposed to. Um, and yes, you know, so there's all sorts of, yeah. um, unfortunately, uh, biased processes that, that are being exploited when you know when we're when we're looking through social media feeds i guess what i was trying to say is um you know that i don't think that that's something that we then say uh i i don't know like uh that it's bad um or that it's necessarily um not uh, not fit for today's environment um, that instead we should look at it as how can we use this? Um, how can we kind of take advantage of the same processes? How can we come up with techniques to take advantage of that system one processing in a way to make our exposure less biased? Does, does that that's make a, sense? No, that's a good point. I mean, you know, cause I think, you know, I was saying like the brain just needs to evolve to be able to like manage this, right? You know, and until like I get, you know, the amygdala overload where the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, I guess I need, you know, uh, you know, I, I need Twitter and Facebook to to keep doing, uh, continue to do a, the job they're doing and the better job as they've been doing the last six months to flag misleading tweets and posts and things like that to say, you might want to pay attention to this. <laughs> this might not be true. You know, if I'm not hardwired yet to learn how to to maybe do that, maybe I need some experts, right? You know, like to fact check. Right. You know, because I don't have enough time in my day to fact check everything. Anyways, yeah. nor do I want to. I want to use like track one. <laughs> you know, yes, I believe you. You know, so I, yeah. Well, I, I, I love that um, discussion. And I, I, I really, uh, you know, I, I agree with everything that, that, that all three of you just mentioned. But I, I, just to kind of tie that in, perhaps what we were talking about, what was mentioned earlier is that you know, when, when Mitch was talking about the epistemology aspect of um, 
what like you just had a disagreement in a way but you had it in a very i mean i wouldn't label it completely disagreement you were highlighting different aspects but you did it in a very collegial way and respectful way but what if people just don't we don't have the same norms or the way that we understand like our how we know things is very different like there's kind of an anti-elite anti-inform like uh, experts anti-experts uh, anti-science uh, anti um and, and maybe there's good justifications it's not really my place to try to explain all those now but you uh, i think it was mitch or somebody pointed out that income inequality racism and so many other just structural systemic issues might lead people to think well why you know why don't i have the dream the american dream or why don't why don't i have it better than maybe a generation or two before me did that, that leads people to this type of anger um but um yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know that I have a question there. I'm just trying to <laughs> tie into uh, connect what, what you were uh, pointing out in your interchange there. So I think at least some of that has to do with social norms um, and what has become normative on Twitter um, versus what's normative in person. Mm -hmm. um, we do know that there are different norms for different social media platforms. Um, and we also know that people behave differently when they can see each other versus when you're conversing through your, you know, through text on your phone. Um, you know, and again, it's it's not only how we're processing the information, you know, it's it's being in the presence of someone else and looking in their eyes and being impacted by those other people. But it's also the social norms governing those platforms and those kinds of communication. So on Twitter, it's not only is it okay, but it's kind of expected to get into, um, you know, more kind of, uh, maybe it's the wrong word, poisonous disagreements, but, you know, more like. Um, hostile. Hostile, yes, that's the word that I'm looking for. That, that hostility is expected and, and maybe even prized, you know, rewarded. Like the more hostile your response, uh, the more it's shared, you know, because it's more extreme. And so people get more of a kick out of it. Um, but you take that same person and you put them in a room sitting across from the person that that they sent that tweet to or, you know, tweeted at. Uh, the exchange is going to be different because there are different social norms governing that. And I, mm. I don't know what point I'm making here, but just, you know. I, I think that forms are important to consider on the platform. You know, but it's, if, if I may real quick, it's also, you know, that like Laura, like you and I have a history, right? I know you to have these kind of qualities and you know me to have these qualities and Nick and Kevin, we all know each other. Um, we have a history. So it's the thing is a, like as a, um, as a stranger who's putting a tweet out there, I don't have that same like background information on you, right? So it's like, so maybe I'm looking for you know, I do a quick search on you, you know, what kind of party do you have, you know, what are your, where'd you go to school? I try to find some affiliative piece to connect whether I'm going to in-group or out-group you. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, I could see how that, that, that would be a helpful piece if we can have that, you know, right. you know that background information, but it's impossible. And yeah. folks, if I, if I may, uh, you, you're not likely of engaging in a physical altercation with somebody online. It's a lot easier to just, you know, Log, log off and, and go to bed you know well, so you're not likely to be with somebody like you would face to face you're more likely to 
passive aggressive or direct Yeah, I just wanted to um, perhaps piggyback on on this point, um, in particular norms that was brought up by Dr. Lawson Collins, and um, and also kind of get at a question that came up in the chat because somebody had asked, well, what's the definition of extremism? And I guess there's part of it that to me, it, like from my gut, it feels like, well, it's extreme, but what does it really mean? Well, I think when we're talking about political extremism, it means that you're, I think it was Mitch or one of you had pointed out that you're really on the far end of the spectrum. You know, if we have liberal on the, on the left and conservative on the right, um, instead of being somewhat on the middle end of the spectrum or middle part of the spectrum, you're on the far end and you, and you don't really agree with um, not only people on the other side of the spectrum, but even some of the people who might be on the, you know, if I'm a far right conservative, I may not um, really even view um, people who are um, somewhat conservative as um, you know, strong enough to be on my uh, in my tribe. And, and I think we've seen some of that, right? Whether it's a centrist Democrat like um, Manchin uh, um, from West Virginia or more of a centrist Republican like Romney, how they have perhaps each been attacked on their side. But my question, I guess my point I want to get to with the norms is it was brought up that you maybe by being so angry and large uh, on social media uh, it's getting more views or it's getting more likes but it's also maybe signaling to our in-group that we're one of like we're showing to my tribe that i'm a strong member and kind of putting a, a, a our, my flag up and sometimes i guess that's a literal flag on facebook but it's a way or so uh, twitter to try to show to your your tribe and I, and I'm trying to understand this definition of extremism too, and tying this in is that it's really lacking norms. That if, if you're not willing to work together, if you're not willing to play by some basic ground rules, that you're violate that that then becomes extremist when you're not playing by some of the same social norms, political norms. And in my classes, at least I teach political science, I spent a lot of time trying to show that these aren't always written, but they are really critical in the way that a system or a society can function. And that without them, that we are really, that we can't make enough laws to fix um, a society that's lacking those norms. And so that definition of extremism to be more more ideological and more polarized um, is a, in essence lacking the, the, the norms. And I just okay. wanted to turn it over to any of you to see if you could add to that or uh, contribute to that idea. Well, I, Kevin, I think some recent politicians, I think, uh, took note of it. Put their flag up and said, I'm going to say whatever I want, and I'm going to be. And, uh, and it was successful for them. It started to work. And I wonder if we're going to continue candidates like that over our years who take such extreme views uh, with the hope of gathering as many people as they can. You know, Nick, this, I'm thinking of some of the political uh, members of Congress. Uh, who have recently raised a lot of money 
and I'm thinking, you know, of AOC uh, on the left. I'm thinking of Marjorie Green Taylor and Josh Hawley on the right. They both broke records. And so in some ways, not only are we rewarding that as consumers on social media by what we click on or what becomes the most trending, but we're literally contributing to it in terms of financial contributions. So in some ways... And it works for that. So one thing that makes me think, you know, to kind of spin off of that is when you're thinking about the extremism, right? You know, if, if I, I mean, I don't know if this is appropriate, but if I were to kind of use it synonymously with radicalization in a sense, right? Because I, I kind of think they're somewhat of a thing, uh, the idea where you're, it's like a matter of degree, right? You're basically trying to mobilize individuals to take a, an action to the extremes and stay out of the middle. And, and I think that so much of the cues, like in our society of the systemic problems we're seeing is, is trying to eliminate the middle. You know, you have to be on one side or the other. And, and maybe, you know, I mean, I'm gonna create my own conspiracy theory here. Maybe that's the idea of uh, the goal here of, of having these, uh, you, know, of, you know, of having these really extreme views out there, right? With like these argumentative points of trying of to like say that, you know, we're not going to allow people to do this to stay on the sideline. You have to pick an either or. And, you know, and that's, I mean, that's where eventually most of us want to stay in the middle of these things and, and, and find a common ground. And, and we all have, you know, things that, and it's become harder to do that, right? I mean, it's harder to stay in the middle class. You're either like becoming this wealthy group or you're becoming this disenfranchised group whose needs aren't even being met. You know, I mean, I know I'm kind of thinking out loud here with this, but when I think of the extremism, you know, and the idea, there's so many I see in my own, you know, anecdotally in my life, the the, the information I seek out or the, the the stuff that comes across my way is pushing people into a direction that that they're really, you know, that they have to kind of take a side. And it's it's harder to like maintain like what is the norm and like say you know so my norm is not going to be this group or that group and it's creating a, an us versus them and and I and, and I you know I mean and unless we come up with some like pre bunking inoculatory effect um, you know I, I'm I'm afraid that that we'll move towards the you know we're going to move towards this direction a little bit even a little bit further um, I don't know it's, that's too so, bad it's too bad most of our politicians. Most of our leaders in our society have worked for a couple of times. This is pretty new for me, but um, one thing I wanted to throw in there uh, that you know, you know, goes based on what all of you have just been talking about that uh, I should have brought up earlier is um, another social psychological effect called the risky shift. And we know that when we have a group of people who all have the same belief, the same ideas. Um, when they get together and talk, they tend to come out of that group talk uh, with a more extreme position. Huh. Um, and so, and, and that's been shown for, you know, several decades um, in, you know, experimentally in lots of different uh, social psych labs. So if you then take that and apply that to these social media bubbles that we're embedding ourselves within, you know, you're talking to like-minded people who all believe yeah. the same thing, you're likely at the end of that to have even a more extreme view. Um, and the more you do that, the more you stay engaged in that, the more extreme your view is likely to get, as well as a view of everybody else in the group um, with you. 
Yeah, I remember reading about those investment clubs, right? The studies for the risky yeah. <laughs> and yeah. social yeah. psych as a student. But, you know, it, it, it's, it, you know, I haven't really explored like QAnon stuff very much. I mean, I've gone down a couple of rabbit holes, but a lot of the stuff I, I see is that like, you know, the push, like, you know, it tends to be authoritarian personalities, um, but they, they see like liberal de- democracy as like an attempt to, the fear is that a liberal democracy is a is an attempt to de-individualize, right? Strip away from the identities that, Nick, that you point out that we forged over these years. And like, this can cause like an unconscious fear. And then when we are in these heightened states of fear, we we look to protect, yeah. you know? We we want to come out fighting and, and protect what we have. And, 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 and you know, and with a, the uncertainty uh, as to how, like, you know, how I might fit into this new world, right? Like maybe some of us like, uh, had this questioning like during COVID when you, if you weren't uh, used to being online, you were thrust into online learning or online teaching. You're like, can I fit into this society anymore? That, that brings a little fear. It's, it's like, can I get adapt? Um, you know, so I, I, I'm worried that like if, if people feel that their identity are being stripped away and they have to forge a new identity and a new alignment, um, at least that's what I saw from the limited stuff, you know, in the while back that uh, from, from some of the keen on things that I had read, but um Maybe that's definitely resentment. That's, yeah. maybe that's why people. Maybe that's why they've had to choose sides. I mean, um, and in no way am I saying that Democrats or Republicans are cults. Okay, I'm not saying that at all. But if people do choose sides, I mean. Uh, Research tells us that when people are, are in a crisis, when they've lost jobs, they've suffered financial loss, they've lost loved ones, lost freedoms, um, which is what kind of the past year, they look for some level of safety. And so maybe they are looking to their candidates for salvation, right? That's not uncommon, I guess. Um, and, and by the way, I wanted to throw in there, I'm not sure if any of uh, if any of us saw, there were, there were three Q&A questions that came up. And I don't know if, if I'm the only one that's them. But uh, there was, Evan, did you see these three? One from, two from a student named Majid and one from a student named Jan. There they are. Can you guys see them? I'll, I'll look at but Nick, real quick to your point, I think persistent inequality breathes, uh, breathes resentment. Yeah. You know, like if I feel sure. that I'm being unjust, you know, like, you know, put into one area and I, my needs aren't being met, it is going to breathe resentment and it's going to potentially incite me to act. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's what we're saying. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of inequality to a disgusting, um, you know, extreme. Right. Uh, you know that, and the and 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 maybe you know this is where like the social media is a good thing too because it's it's putting it in our face. I can't ignore it because of my neighborhood or not. You know, I mean, it, you have to deal with it and you have to you know come up with something. So I know we want to get those two and eight years time. So that's um, so I hadn't been able to see the Q&A before now. Um, Kevin, do you mind if I take a stab at that last question Please. from Jan? Just real quick, um, Jan, if you're still um, on the talk, uh, there is a book um, that's, that's pretty decent. Um, it's called Escaping the Rabbit Hole. It's by Mick West. Um, and he is uh, the the founder and the person who runs a large debunking website called Metabunk. 
Um, and he goes through a number of dominant uh, conspiracy theories um, and gives examples of people who have been able to extricate themselves from those communities and are now no longer embedded within those conspiracy theory communities um, and, uh, you know, uh, are, ha have been pulled from them. Um, and so it's a great book, you know, it's on uh, Audible as well. Um, and I, I think that his main points are one, you have to be respectful. So making fun of people, uh, deriding their beliefs, bullying them uh, is, is going to put people's defenses up and it tends to make them dig in deeper to their beliefs. Um, two, um, you need to find a point of commonality, uh, something that you share. Maybe you're both parents or maybe you both love the White Sox or maybe you both watch Dancing with the Stars or like what like it can be a stupid thing. You know, it doesn't have to be important, but find points of commonality so that you're shifting that us versus them dynamic. Um, and I think those are the two major points. Um, you want to, when you're talking to people about their ideas, you, you want to make sure that you're not um, telling them straight on, those theories are stupid, they're wrong, how can you believe these things? Because that immediately just puts up the wall and they're not going to process what you're talking about. Um, and again, he has some really specific advice for different kinds of theories. Um, so, you know, throw that out there. Um, could each of you um, just briefly mention um, what extremism, um, definition of extremism or definition of conspiracy theory? Oh. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll go with like conspiracy theory. Um, it, you know, it's basically defined as a, you know, I'm, I'm going to use this one that I was using for this model that came from Karen Douglas and she defined it as um, a proposed plot carried out in secret, usually by a powerful group of people who have some kind of sinister goal. Right? And that's kind of the way I've been using that definition, so I don't want to reinvent it. <laughs> um, but it kind of was defined as a proposed plot carried out in secret, usually by a powerful group of people who have some kind of sinister goal. So, and then the idea of the extremism, um, I would say again, is we have these socially accepted norms and anytime you try to make a movement, to away from the the norm in deliberate re, uh, you know response to uh, a, a deliberate violation of that norm i would call that extremism right or an ideology that is very far outside extreme attitude and usually using political and religious texts, i would say that's mainly right Uh, one of the questions in the Q&A was, why is this level of extremism spreading not just in the United States, but all around the world? And that's from Ajit. Kevin, can I take just a quick stab at this? So, from all the research studies that I was thinking about, um, it looks like immigration tends to be a concern or a threat to people no matter where, no matter where they live. And so that notion of, you know, they're not, you know, and especially in, homo in homogeneous countries, right, uh, you're going to see this level of extremism in almost every country where immigration comes. In. And that's just one of the things that I just want to talk about. 
we just might not hear about it. So we know that this happens in almost every country. We just might not have the lens to their news. Yeah, and, and as both Mitch and Nick have already talked about, I think anytime you have social upheaval, you know, Mitch, or I'm sorry, Nick, you were talking about immigration. Um, anytime you have any kind of financial uncertainty, um, mm -hmm. you know, Nick, I know you are very aware of Golden Dawn in Greece, and that happened when Greece was experiencing their extreme financial um, mm -hmm. pressures from yeah, the EU yeah. back in, I think it was 08, right? 07, 08? I think so. They were an extremist group. I, I think they're tamped down a little bit right now, right? Yep. Um, uh, but they, yeah, they're they're considered a, a hate group now, and right. uh, yeah, not allowed, not allowed in Congress. Right, right. But the the point being, anytime you have uh, social upheaval, you know, uh, political uncertainty, um, an ambiguous situation that's you know difficult to know what to make of when people feel threatened, Mitch, as you talked about. All of those factors uh, drive us to, you know, want to be safe in a group, want to belong to a group, um, want to know what's going on. Uh, and so we look to our social media bubbles for information as to what's going on. And we tend to believe those bubbles that, that we trust, you know, that have people whom we trust. Um, and so when you see it going on around the world, we are in a very uncertain time. Um, you know, we just are. Um, it's not just in the United States. You look at um, countries all around the world are going through a period of upheaval and uncertainty. Um, and during those times, um, we tend to stick more with our own, with our own, whatever our own is, whatever that in group is. Um, when you feel threatened, you know, again, it drives you more into your group to feel safe. Yeah. And we all have social media. You know, social media is not, again, it's not just a U.S. kind of thing. It's not just a Western kind of thing. You see social media platforms around the world. So that also has, I think, driven this. Mm -hmm. It's easier yeah. access to these ideas. Yeah, I mean, inequality, while it's widespread in America, it's not just an American thing. And anytime you have that inequality, you're going to find levels of, of you know, people feeling disenfranchised, which requires extreme behaviors to get out of it. Um, and that's probably a good reason why we're seeing this worldwide and not just just here. Uh, but I do want to leave it too, like that last point about how can we break the conspiracy theorist piece. I mean, there's like like if you're really interested in reading this, like, you know, one of the books tried and true for my undergrad was the Yale uh, approach to attitude change, you know, and like there's a whole theory on persuasion and attitude change and how to go about it. And just think like every commercial you see where a celebrity is uh, endorsing some product they have no knowledge about or no expertise in. And we just try to find things that we like about people. And then that helps us, like, you know, relate some as Laura was saying that, you know, we'll find some common ground that we can talk about. And if you know that person is going to be exposed to some uh, misinformation, can't speak uh, enough about the inoculation effect. Whereas if you can introduce, say, like, hey, this person's going to tell you these few things just to be ready, you know, and it kind of builds up your defense when they do tell you like, ah, Laura said she was going to say that. So like it almost helps you. So those are two, two walkaways that they may help going forward and, and then just making sure that your information is sound and, and trusted. Good point. Nick, would you like a final walkaway point? No, I would just say that basically mirror what, what both of the said is that uh, talking to different 
talking, having in research tells us that having an intellectual discussion with somebody about differences is one of the ways that we kind of break thoughts or stereotypes or uh, or or you know discussions on conspiracies and whatnot. But being exposed to different people, but also having again having an intellectual discussion with them. Trying to find common ground with them might make you humanize these people more. Um, and uh, but no, that's that's essentially that's essentially what I would say is uh, how do you break this the, the spell or extract? I'm called my thinking is uh, um, I would say don't be afraid to carry perspective with them. And if they trust you and if they respect you, you know, you can even help them question some of their own thinking. And and don't expect their um, beliefs to change overnight. Um, it's typically something that takes months and for some people years to climb their way out of. So it it's very rare that you know someone gets exposed to some piece of information who's been a long time believer of a conspiracy theory and they just say, oh well, I guess I was wrong. Um, it doesn't usually happen that way. So don't expect that one conversation, you know, over drinks is going to change your mind. It's something that takes, you know, exposure after exposure after exposure and, um, you know, really needs to come also some of that motivation, you know, as as Mitch, you were talking about the the key of motivation. Some of that has to come from them as well. Um, yeah. Things that they're noticing. Um, and being, you know, unsettled by or, you know, that, that don't quite make sense to them that they've noticed. I think it's hard for people to admit they were wrong, especially if they've had, if they've held certain beliefs for a really, really long time. It's a sense of pride that they have. Especially yeah. when it's public. Yeah. yeah. And Nick, you did bring up a good point about Thurgood Marshall, you know, and like the uh, contact hypothesis, right? Yeah. Just being yeah. around people of differences makes you realize that they care about the same things you do, too. Even if you you know have some disagreements, it's a way of coexisting for sure. Sure. Well, Thanks. I, I want to thank each of the panel members. Uh, we're over time by seven minutes, and I want to respect everybody's time. And I appreciate the, the participants <laughs> sticking around. Um, and I'm sorry if we didn't get to your questions, but we are out of time. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Collins, uh, uh, Mitch, and Nick, um, uh, and, and all of your insights today. It was really helpful um, and uh, appreciate uh, you working so hard on this event and volunteering your time.